Get in, loser. We're going to the movies. Julia? What? We have to be awake. We have to be alive, alert, and enthusiastic. Um, I, okay, but I'm not clapping my hands or doing the chant. Oh, yeah, that's like a summer camp thing, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm just saying that we're tired, but we devs have some Blair Witch to talk about. We have things to say. We do. So, without further ado, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Teen Wolf Ray Wolf podcast, a podcast where we talk about the Blair Witch Project. Because it's Halloween time. It is Halloween time, and it is my favorite horror movie. Uh, This is the first time I've seen it, so... It will become your favorite horror movie. That I'm not 100% sure of. All right. But I also don't know what my favorite horror movie would be, so... Well, then maybe we have to do some... In chapter two. (laughs) In chapter two. Wasn't it horrible? It's really really bad. I'm not seeing it. I also didn't see the first one. The first one is actually decent. Okay. The best thing about the second one is the casting of the characters, and we've known that forever, so then you see the movie and you're like, oh, this is not worth my time or my money. But you know when you see, like, really horrendous movies that, like, actors you like are in? Like, let's just name, like, a random movie. Like, what's your number? (laughs) (laughs) It's going to become a drinking game for our listeners. How many times (laughs) do Christian name drop what's What's your your number number? in an episode? I've told you how I theorized that what's your number is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm here for it. Listen, Martin Freeman, Anthony Mackie. Chris Evans, and then one other person who I'm forgetting, but there's definitely one more. If we, if Chris Evans ever hears about this podcast, I want him to know that the piece of property we talk about most often that he's a part of is the worst rom-com of all time. <laughs> it is so, it is not the worst rom-com of all time. You're right. Go to Rotten Tomatoes, hit the 0% <laughs> button, you will find the worst rom-com of all time. It is a pass, it is a middling rom-com. I'm actually going to look at the Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> score right now because I don't believe you. I feel like it's going to be like 30%. Which is middling for a rom-com. I, what, okay, what are you saying? What's your over-under? Uh, under 30? Over 30. Around 30. Okay. 24%! Ah, oh, damn. <laughs> Maybe it isn't a middling rom-com and I'm just dumb. Just because it sucks doesn't mean we don't love it. We do love it so much, but you know what we love even more than that? The Blair Witch Project, (laughs) which is actually what this podcast is about. For today, anyway. For today. Later, later it'll be back to our regular scheduled programming of Mm -hmm. Teen Wolf and... Of course. What's your number? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think we're going to get started like we always do. Yes. With a recap. Of the Blair Witch Project. Do we need a, a minute? Almost no. Yeah. Well, let's do a minute. Do we, let's do it like we do with Twilight, where we see who can do it in the shortest. Okay. Maybe that will just be how we do reviews. Okay. The Rewolf reviews. The Rewolf reviews. All right. All right, we, I got my stopwatch. Um, in three, two... Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, no, you're going first. Oh, okay. It's your favorite horror movie. Yeah, it is, but, but, I, but we, did, we didn't discuss... Okay, so should I sum up the Blair Witch Project? Oh, wait, hold on. I gotta get my stopwatch out again. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right, ready? Three, two, one. So three college students go into the woods. Their names are Heather, Josh, and Mike, and they're filming a documentary on this old scary story about this Blair Witch, which is, like, a Maryland, like, 
crypto legend and they ask a bunch of people all the scary stuff and all these people have all these scary stories about the about the Blair Witch and then as they're going they start to get lost and more and more lost and then Mike and Josh are blaming Heather for getting them lost and then it turns out that Mike kicked the map into the river and then while they're getting more and more lost they're getting like seriously haunted so they're hearing all these like noises at night and they keep finding these like piles of rocks and these like stick figures that look like they were made by like a forest dweller and then Josh disappears so then Mike and Heather are on their own and they still can't get out of the woods and then at the end they find this house and they both definitely die. 47 seconds. Cool. I feel like I added some superfluous details, so that's yeah. pretty great that I did it under, under a minute. But also, like, plot, there's not a lot in this movie, no. but there is a lot in it. To talk about. Yes. Um, are you ready? I am ready. And three, two, one. So Heather, Josh, and Mike decide that they are going to go make a documentary on the Blair Witch, which is a fake Maryland legend. The only Maryland legend is the Goat Man. Um, no, there's probably more, but I only know of the Goat Man. <laughs> terrible they go into the woods they but first they go to the town and they ask all the people what they know about the Blair Witch it's super creepy but they are not deterred um they go out into the middle of the woods and things get steadily creepier and weirder um eventually Josh disappears um which leads to them running into a house in the middle of the night because they hear Josh screaming and uh they all die the end 36 I missed so much and I digressed about the goat the man. Goat man. So. Okay, question about the goat man. Did you know of the goat man before we no. started looking into America? No. Like Maryland no. legends? I will. Okay, I've heard of it because it's on the internet. But also, I like am from the DMV area, so it's not. It's Maryland, but it's weirdly not Maryland. Okay. Yeah. But the goat man, everyone, he's out there. He's real. The only Detroit cryptid that I know of is the Nain Rouge and it's this little demon that followed the French over when they settled the territory and uh it supposedly every time you see it something really awful happens because like one of the French settlers like beat it with its cane and so it has a vengeance against our city and that's why everything sucks (laughs) and every time every like before all of the horrible events that have happened in Detroit like the riots and like the fires and stuff like people are like oh I saw the Nain Rouge but now every March we have a Marcia Day in Rouge where we go and chase the devil out of our city. I like that. It's very wholesome. It's also gotten very white. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that a lot. We are this... going to talk about white people mm-hmm. in this this uh, this here podcast. In case but... you didn't know, we are both white. I just felt like I needed to make that clarification. Yeah, no. But yeah. We're not denying white responsibility no. here. Yeah. Um, um, but this movie is very, also very white, and it, it ends up being something to talk about. Um, we were going to do a spoiler warning at the beginning of this episode, and then we didn't and did a recap. Oops. Spoilers? <laughs> the movie um, has been out for 20 years, which, let's, let's make that our first point of conversation. Mm-hmm. The cultural impact of the Blair Witch Project cannot be understated. First and first mostly, it was really the first ever, like, found footage full feature film that really worked specifically in the horror genre. To the point where when this movie was presented by its filmmakers, they told everybody it was real. For a full year, they had the actors hide. And everybody was terrified because it is so realistic and so unsettling in the way that it really does just look like a bunch of footage filmed by three college students in the woods. Their parents got, like, condolence cards from people. 
It's insane. Yeah. And further, like, further than that, like, it completely changed the way that people make horror. Like, without the Blair Witch Project, you wouldn't have had any of Marble Hornets for anybody who, like, liked the Slenderman stuff on YouTube. And then you wouldn't have had Cloverfield and, like, every other found footage horror. Like, you couldn't be traced back to Blair Witch. Not all of it, obviously. Mm -hmm. But this was also, like, the Blair Witch also, like, due to the time it was made, like, this is when digital cameras started kind of making their way into, like, a scene where they were available to rent like these guys do or own. You know, Mm -hmm. all of my family home videos around the the same era were filmed in, like, the same kind of, like, shitty color camera that Heather carries through the whole time. It was all of a sudden a time where people could be bringing, you know if you had an extra battery pack and memory cards, you could be in the woods and filming this stuff. It was so realistic and unsettling that like this movie could not be made today, you know? Oh, it definitely couldn't. What's, what's, was interesting to me because this is the first time I've ever seen this movie. So of course I did a lot of Googling because I had a lot of questions I wanted to answer for myself, but a lot of people credit this movie as being the first film to really utilize, um, like, digital marketing on the internet. Because, I mean, this movie was made in 1999, if you didn't know. Or was released in 1999. And um, the movie website had, like, missing posters for the three main actors. Um, and that was kind of the way that word of mouth was spread. I mean, it obviously... It, well, not obviously, but, like, it premiered at Sundance, and so people kind of heard about it um, through that way. But it... I don't want to say that it went viral, but it got a lot of traction mm-hmm. for that time period on the internet when, like, you know, it's not a, it yeah. was not as widely used. Um, so we have the Blair Witch Project to thank for digital marketing. Ugh. No. But. No. Let's not blame them for that. But it's not really the same, you know, where now you can't go on Instagram in October without seeing a jump scare ad, which mm-hmm. infuriates me and probably every other person who hates that shit. It was done in a way where it was, like, a, basically a, a breadcrumb trail mm-hmm. for people to kind of hear about this and, and have it spread that way. And obviously the, the internet was a lot more rudimentary back then. Smaller. Yeah. Smaller, poor design. Like, you couldn't, you know, one thing wasn't going to take you to a million other sites. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is fascinating itself. And not even just in the way that I was saying, like, all of a sudden now people had, you know digital cameras that they could have with them and come the 90s. There's also an aspect of this movie couldn't be made on a cell phone because cell phones would invalidate a lot, a big part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Which is that they're lost. Yeah. Um, I did need some clarification during the movie, which you very helpfully provided me, that they are lost because they're being haunted. But I do think that it would be much harder um, to get around that if you have a cell phone. Because, yeah. like, you could be haunted all you want, but can you haunt a cell phone? Yes. Probably. Yes, there are horror movies about haunted cell phones. I don't want to watch that. That's too you can much. Haunt any, you can haunt a videotape. Have you seen The Ring? Have you seen the original? No. Much better. Oh, okay. Yeah, very Maybe good. we'll do The Ring we one watch day. watch that, yeah. Um, I love The Ring. I, we went to watch it for my Japanese film class, and... Um, my professor basically argued that that horror movie doesn't work in the United States because the original really plays on 
the feeling of isolation that a lot of um, Japanese families were feeling at the time because people were moving into big cities and being separated from their extended families, which was how they were raised. Mm-hmm. And, like, the whole movie takes place in, like, an apartment complex. It's, you know, because it, it plays very specifically on Japanese cultural fears and then doesn't translate as well to America. But I think that this film translates really well to American anxieties, the Blair Witch Project. Well, I think it is about American anxieties, you know? And it's funny because so much of, like, what Heather says throughout the movie is, like, you can't get lost in America these days, Mm -hmm. which is... Blatantly untrue. Blatantly untrue. I mean, like, even even in our smaller states, there is so much open land. Oh, I went... I went to Vermont with my um, stepdad to like look at property that he has there, and if I hadn't been there with a land surveyor, I would have not known how to get out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even just like if you take the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Oh, I would never want to get lost out there. No, That's terrible. No, one because you'd fucking freeze to death or get eaten by a bear. But the Upper Peninsula of Michigan takes up twenty five percent of Michigan's landmass, and only three hundred thousand people live there. That's the size of, like, a large town or a small city. And a large part of that population are is incarcerated people, so it's not even, like, people who are living in that yeah. part of the state yeah. freely. And, like, there, I mean, like, you have Marquette, which is, like, a, you know, a relative-sized town. It's, like, I think 30,000 people. But, like, there is so much space where you will literally just not see anybody for so long. So it's so interesting to me that that is something that Heather tries to keep reiterating to herself. But this was also during a, the, a time of panic where we were worried about, like, overpopulation and running out of space still. Mm-hmm. Um, which we, I mean, we, that's just, overpopulation is an issue in, like, air, crowded areas, not in, like, the global sense. Yeah. Um, and like, obviously it's an issue in a climate sense, but like that was still like a, a panic then. And to have her be like, you can't get lost nowadays in America is something that is one, it really shows you how naive Heather is throughout the whole thing. But also is like really interesting that that is like the kind of one of her, the fears she keeps reiterating or saying Mm -hmm. she doesn't have. Well, I also think that's a really common trope of someone who has spent their whole lives in either an urban or suburban area mm-hmm. and doesn't actually know how to be at one with nature or how to live in a small community um, and has those really, I'm not going to say arrogant, I do think naive is the better word for that, but has those ideas that you can't get lost in America. Like, this can't be happening to us in the woods. If we keep walking, eventually we'll find something. Mm-hmm. Um and she's punished for that naivete. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, though, because she says in the movie when um, there's a part uh, once, I think it's actually jo- after Josh disappears, where Mike asks her what her favorite thing to do on a Sunday is. And she says, go to the woods and go hiking. Mm-hmm. So I think she is probably someone who, yes, does live in an urban area, but like assumes that her, you know, brief encounters with, like, wilderness has prepared her for the situation which like sometimes it kind of can like you don't have to be a genius to go camping you should do your research and like go with people and like mm-hmm. do it whatever but it doesn't take somebody who's like you know a he-man nature survivor to go out and you know get drunk in the woods with your friends oh sure i just yeah. think that she like she's so cavalier through a lot of the film because she has that sort of that sense of security that comes from living in an in urban area in an urban area yeah um, then let's let's talk about Heather and let's talk about her role in the film as both like 
she she is the inciting event of this entire story. She it is her documentary. She is the host of it. She's the one who assembles this kind of crew with her friend Josh and Mike, who I think they invite onto the project. Yeah, they've not met. They've not met this. him. And it is her naivete, and I'm gonna say arrogance. Like it is Heather is arrogant, mm-hmm. which is a you know a character flaw, but not necessarily like what always gets you killed in things. Um, it is her kind of assumption that she knows exactly what is right that puts them in the position to be haunted mm-hmm. by the Blair Witch, whatever you make that to be. And I have questions about that later. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of the way that it is posed is kind of in that she's acting like this because she's the girl in the group. Mm-hmm. It feels very gendered to me, and I want to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mentioned this to you when we were watching the movie, so I, I had never seen it before, and I don't know why, I'm not sure why I thought this, but my conception of it was that it was a movie about women, and that there were more women in the film, but it's just Heather and these two dudes, and that really changed kind of how I thought about it, mm-hmm. um, and I think women are often more willing to believe in, like, the supernatural... Um, etc. So that puts them in that position of being like the unrational, the irrational one. Yeah. Although it's funny because but, I don't think Heather is set up like that. No, which I think is interesting. Um, and she's always very calm and cool and collected and like trying to take charge, but then they won't let her. Mm-hmm. Um, because they think that they know best. Like one of the things that infuriated me, many things infuriated me in this movie was when she keeps insisting that they kn- that she knows where they're going. And this is even before that they start to get lost. And they insist on checking the map. They can't just trust her. Yeah. And it's funny because she proves at the beginning of the movie that she does know where she's going. Because she gets them to Coffin Rock and the area mm-hmm. that they refer to as the cemetery, which ends up being those, the pile of the seven rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is supposed to be indicative of the seven children who were murdered. Yeah. Um, so she has offered them proof that she can read a map and she's also the only one who has experience in reading a map so to have these guys be like you are wrong even though eventually mike looks at the map and says that's greek to me and Mm -hmm. still is the asshole who to kick it in the water which is just like and i want i have a thought about this and I, i want you to consider this but also answer honestly do we think that part of their like psychosis is when they start getting lost and scared is what like drives Mike to do that? Yes. Or do you think he's actually just an asshole? No, I think that at 100%. Because I think that if he did it because he was being an asshole, he would realize immediately that that was a mistake and try to go get it back. Yeah. He wouldn't think that it was funny. That's fair. Um, at least I don't think so. That seems like a very irrational human thing because there are serious consequences to losing the map. Mm-hmm. Mainly that you'll die. Yeah. Because of exposure. Um... No, I definitely think that it is that it's part of their yeah. they're going crazy, yeah. the madness. Yeah. And the madness is what makes this movie really work. The fact that this is a a movie about a haunting, I it, for lack of a better word really, that doesn't include like blood leaking from the walls or doors slamming shut or, mm-hmm. you know, seeing little children in Victorian clothing running around the hallway. Like it is done almost entirely in like a cerebral sense is fascinating. It 
it because I think people and it's the point of horror movies a lot of times is that you can be more frightened of your own thoughts than things in life, and that is what drives the fear in this movie. It's brilliant. It's very telling how horror has evolved and also like penetrated the mainstream even if you're not someone who watches horror like you're very attuned to jump scares you're very attuned to like the camera turning and someone being in the frame you weren't expecting and during a lot of the night scenes when they're flashing around with the the flashlights and the camera I kept expecting to see something Mm -hmm. and eventually the fact that I wasn't seeing anything was more unsettling yeah and especially when the camera would just go dark and you just hear all of the noise, that was more terrifying than, like, seeing a, a figure. Yeah. It's like aliens. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I mentioned this to you when we finished it, at the, the final end of the movie when both of the cameras drop, I always was expecting to see a foot come into frame, mm-hmm. like, a, or something that would indicate to you that what the presence was that knocked them over. Um... But we don't ever see that. And it's actually mm-hmm. so much... Like, one, because I think it would give away what we were dealing with, in a, in a sense. You know, it would tell mm-hmm. you whether or not we were dealing with a man or a woman or a creature or whatever. And the fact that we never see it is all the more terrifying. I would agree. Because when you have something like that to kind of latch on to, you can rationalize it away. Mm-hmm. When you When you walk away from the movie at night and you try to go to sleep and you're like, there's no such thing as ghosts or there's no such thing as this axe man who's going to run around in the woods and murder me. But the fact that you don't have a physical thing to rationalize away, it just leaves you with this really eerie feeling. Yeah. It's unsettling. It's very foreboding. And what's also interesting... Um, I think is really well done is the fact that we only have one moment of gore in the entire movie and it is very subdued to the mm-hmm. point where you didn't even really know what we were looking at. And I think I said it was a tongue, but I actually think it's part of a jaw um, wrapped up in the sticks yeah. after Josh disappears. So we know that Josh has been murdered from that and still Heather and Mike are going so crazy, but are still so desperate to cling on to the idea that he is alive. That is what brings them hurtling through the woods into the house at the end of the movie. But we don't see, you know, a body hung up in the trees. We don't no. see anything, you know, we're not seeing any other body parts or whatever. We're seeing a, a small piece. We know it is human flesh, but it is not anything that can, you can, it doesn't look like, there's no claws in a body, you know. Yeah. It's not a cut from a knife. It is something that is untraceable and therefore all the more disturbing because you don't know how it was broken away from its hole and that is Mm -hmm. disgusting and very very scary I I think the other thing that makes this movie really work is that it demands your attention yeah um and this might be just a me thing and not me like specifically but kind of a generational thing where a lot of times if I'm watching something I'm on my phone because I don't have to pay that close attention but if you hadn't been watching the beginning of the film and they do their interviews, getting to the final scene and like seeing Mike standing in a corner when Heather comes downstairs to the basement, chills. Yeah. Like you're already freaked out, but because you heard all of the stories at the beginning, you're like, oh my God. You know to be looking for a house in the woods. You know about the story of turning Mm -hmm. the children away so that they, you know, because you couldn't handle the eyes on him. Yeah. 
which is, I literally goosebumps now talking about it. It is mm-hmm. terrifying and deeply unsettling. Let's talk about the interviews and how they are like such an amazing part of this movie. They are within the first 15 minutes. And we never see, after the interviews are over, we never see any other people in the movie besides Heather, Josh, and Mike. But the one with the woman who's a mom holding her toddler. Oh, oh it's so creepy. It is so creepy. I don't know how, like... the I'm assuming just the, the baby was tired of... You know when you're in the supermarket and your mom's talking to like a friend and you're like, we gotta go. I think... I'm assuming that that's how it was... That the this woman, the actress, had been talking for so long that the baby eventually got tired and was like, "We need to leave." But the fact that the baby shuts its mom's mouth and says no when she's trying to talk about the Blair Witch is, oh my gosh, terrifying. is terrifying. I do think there must have been some direction in that too, like someone standing behind Heather being like. Oh, you know, and that was super visual. Sorry, podcaster. She put her hand to her mouth. Yeah, like kind of miming for the, because babies mime what you're doing. I, but it's very interesting because, so again, I did a lot of reading after this um, because I wanted to know more about how the film was made because I had a lot of questions. It is fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, So for those of you who don't know, it is essentially what you see um, on camera is how it was made. And so these actors went and did those like initial interviews with the people in the town or whatever. And then they go off hiking in the woods. Um, and every night they would know where to set up camp because the crew had like put out a milk crate with the flag on it. And there would be film canisters like underneath the milk crate with notes for each of the actors, because I guess that the directors must've been watching the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of the actors would receive their notes, but not be able to tell the other actors what those notes were. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, when Josh's character dies, Josh was told by the directors to wake up in the middle of the night and leave the tent. And if anyone, you know, asked you where you're going, just tell them, like, you were outside to take a piss. And they put him in a car and were like, you're done, you're going home. That's all we need from you. So it's not like they would do a take with the cameras... And then someone would come in. And I think part of that had to do with logistics because you couldn't get a sense of, like, how deep they were in the woods and the fact that there's truly no one around them mm-hmm. if you were physically there. So, but I just think it's so fascinating. And I actually, going back and thinking about it, I wanted more interviews. I wanted more interactions with the townspeople. Yeah. Um... Because it is a lot of time just with the really shaky found footage in the forest. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is. But also, and I, to go back to what you said, not only would having a crew there ruin the, you know, the effect, or mm-hmm. would, is not a created effect, the actual effect of being alone in the woods. Also, there's no way to replicate, like... F- a camera like there's no way really way for a cameraman to replicate how they're holding that camera and shooting it herself yeah um i mean i'm sure there are techniques but they would not be near as Mm -hmm. i guess i don't know what the word is like as honest as that is and that is something where because it is just the three of them because they have got these two cameras you can only ever see two people at a time on camera it's very isolating, which mm-hmm. is what hardly fear. Like the, the the crippling fear of this movie is that they are utterly fucking alone. And as much as I think I would like to see more interviews, the fact that they cut it off at the beginning and then they are 
Dunzo is mm-hmm. terrifying. And I said this I said this to Julia. So for the first 70 minutes of this movie, what we see is just kind of like the psychological breakdown of these three people in the woods, which after however many, much time you spend in the woods, you know, barely sleeping and not eating and going through like nicotine and caffeine withdrawals, you really would just be going crazy. But without that 70 minute block, the last 10 minutes would mean nothing. But because of it, the last 10 minutes are some of the most like terror inducing minutes in any movie I've seen, which is like a lot of horror movies, but it is so gripping and horrifying. And because you have all this background information before that leads you to this point, it's so earned. Like the pacing in this movie structurally, you would be like, if you, somebody explained that to you, you'd be like, uh, that sounds really boring. But when you watch it, it is, you're, you know, hooked the whole Mm -hmm. way through. I was. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I just, I just compared it kind of to Zodiac, where, like, if you've ever seen Zodiac, which a lot of people have, Zodiac is technically boring. Nothing happens in Zodiac because there is no result to, like, trying to find out who the Zodiac killer is. But the entire movie is terrifying, and you're, like, just sold, even though nothing is happening. Like, and then it kind of culminates, there's one really scary scene where Jake Gyllenhaal is in a basement and you think that he's going to be murdered and he isn't. But even so, because you have all of this background information before on the Zodiac Killer, you think he's going to die in that moment. It is terrifying. But it requires the first 70 minutes of boring terror to get to those 10 minutes of terror, terror. You know what would have made that movie better? Huh? If they knew that the Zodiac Killer was actually Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz is the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. Actually, no. because Retweet. Yeah. Retweet. Ted Cruz is the Zodiac Killer. But isn't the Zodiac Killer the guy from that podcast? No. The Clearing. Is that what Everyone it's called? Everyone listen to The Clearing. It's a really interesting true crime podcast, and we don't like true crime, and we'll talk about it let, that later, but um, it's a really interesting true crime podcast about um, Edward Wayne Edwards, who murdered five people. It's a terrible, terrible serial killer name. But there's oh, this, he's just like John Wayne Gacy. It's got the same. Yeah. Name. It's got that, that cadence, but there's this crazy cop who thinks that he has committed every single unsolved crime in America, including the Zodiac murders and the murder of JonBenet Ramsey. I wish I was kidding. You can't have both. <laughs> you cannot have both. No. Yeah. Also, the brother did it. Yeah. Okay, here's what I think. I think <laughs> JonBenet Ramsey sidebar, everybody. We're pausing, we're talking, and blurred. I think that Burke hurt her, like, fatally mm-hmm. like the point where she would have died without seeking medical help but i think her dad finished the job interesting yeah but we don't like true crime but so. we don't like true crime <laughs> i mean we do and if you like true crime like whatever it's just not our ish but back to the blair witch and we got to talk about this i want to talk more in depth about gender and i also want to talk about white people <laughs> this is a very white people movie one because they're camping i feel like that's a very white people activity. oh yeah it is um and two I cannot think of any person of color that I know who would, like, voluntarily go out into the woods to film a documentary about, like, a local legend. Because that is just inviting problems into your house. Well, here's the way I look at it. The ultimate sign of privilege is thinking that you can go into situations that will inherently be dangerous and think you'll walk out unscathed unscathed which is how all of them behave Mm -hmm. and like if you are going to be somebody who goes out into nature and most survivalists will tell you this like 
you have to be someone who is understanding that you are at nature's mercy mm-hmm. and at no point do any of these people even remotely think that. Yeah. They pack marshmallows. <laughs> they do. And, um, but that's like white privilege, just being like, I can walk into dangerous situations and walk out unscathed, which... If you're white and have that privilege, a lot of the times, yeah, but not in the fucking woods. Yeah. And the woods, I would say, when we're talking about inanimate characters in a film, like, the woods are very much a character Yeah. in the film. Um, and none of them are like, oh, gosh, I love being in the woods, except for Heather, who's like, I love to hike. Yeah. Um, the woods hide something dangerous Mm -hmm. and scary and none of them really want to be there so they're not like appreciating nature they're just like i want to get the hell out yeah Um, and i don't really know what the wildlife is like in the woods of maryland but i find it strange that we don't see any animals yes and they mention like deer and stuff but they use deer as kind of like the way to rationalize what they're hearing and stuff Mm -hmm. which is i guess what you would do Um, i mean maryland has a very robust white-tailed deer problem no, I mean, Michigan. I mean, yeah. like Michigan. But my point was, like, are there animals of prey that are big enough to hurt people in the Maryland woods? I think there are bears. You guys get bears? I think so. Bears? I feel like most states have bears unless you're, like, in yeah. a desert in Florida. Yeah. But I've, Florida has alligators. Like, if you don't have bears, you have something equally scary. Equally terrible. Yeah. Um, I find it strange we don't see really any animals at all. Yeah. Which probably just has something to do with the fact that there are humans tromping around in the forest with their cameras and, like, being loud, but... But even so, you'd see, see birds. anything, yeah. Like, no birds. No, but you'd see squirrels. Does Maryland have squirrels? You have squirrels, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Just, so oh, yeah. Every once in a while, I meet somebody who will, like, come to Michigan from a different place. Like, I had friends from New Zealand, and they were like, we can't get over squirrels. We've never seen them before. It's, because you know what they have in New Zealand, New Zealand instead of squirrels? Mm-hmm. Hedgehogs. Which is just oh, infinitely just, better. That's much better. Okay, but you know how you can tell that this movie is set, like, in the boonies of Maryland and not, like... The accents? In the DMV. No, there's no bamboo. Wait, what? Bamboo, bamboo is an invasive plant, and you find it everywhere in the DMV because they brought it over when the DC Zoo got pandas and it is an invasive plant species so it is in almost all of the forest. Wait, when did the DC Zoo get pandas? I don't know, but it's been there for a long time. So they've had pandas since before the 90s? I am uh, pretty sure. Okay. But like there are people who don't believe me that there's like bamboo in Maryland. I'm like, oh it grows everywhere and it's terrifying. We should consult Madison. We should. Is there bamboo in Baltimore? She would know. I don't know. But that's how you can tell that it's set, like, in the boonies. Yeah. Besides the fact that it's very clearly set. Yeah, very- and what's cra- kind of crazy, and this is just, like, general comments on America, is, like, small towns in one part of America are small towns in every part of America mm-hmm. with, like, local seasoning. Like, I'm sure that lo- the local seasoning here was Old Bay. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um... But it is it is something where it is a deeply American movie, you know. Mm-hmm. And back to white people. These people are. No, not back to white people, but back to like the demographic of this movie. There is a moment in this movie that I will find de- kind of endearing, but also like it jarred me the first time I saw it, and still kind of I'm like interesting. Where. 
They're sitting in the tent, and I think it is the three of them still. I think it's the night when Josh disappears, um, where Heather has a flashlight in her mouth, and she is sewing Mike's jeans, because there's a hole in them. Yeah. And they mention something about, like, any comfort of home, which, like, at that point, yes, you were clinging onto the idea of comfort, and if there's a hole in your pants, like, you're just going to be going nuts, like you're already going crazy. Like it's just something that would continue to jab you and until you went truly insane because it is just one more thing you can't fix. But it is an instance of like forced domesticity on yeah. Heather who has just met Mike. And presumably like if you give, a, I honestly think this like, is just one of those things where like men pretend to be useless. Like if you gave Mike a needle and thread, he could probably figure out how to sew his fucking pants and very badly, but he could do it. He could do it. But that moment always struck me as it, it hits me in a weird place because I'm also like, yeah, God, like if Heather, who's probably feeling so guilty, was probably like, I will do this for you. Like, let me try to make you, like, offer you some modicum of comfort or support in that moment. But it's also mm-hmm. like, here, girl, do this domestic task. Conversely, when they are walking across the stream and Heather goes on like a five minute diatribe about the fact that they're laughing at her when her shoes are going to be wet for the rest of the day and she's going to be incredibly uncomfortable and they like find that funny, which again, I do think is part of their psychosis of being haunted, but like they can't extend that same courtesy to her of being like, oh man, that sucks. They're just like laughing at her. Yeah. And they don't care about her comfort. Yeah. Pretty much ever. At all, no. No. They, there's a scene where Josh is, like, filming her peeing in the woods, yeah. and he's making fun of her, which is, like, it's hard to pee in the woods when you're a girl squatting over whatever foliage. Once my friend Mara got stinging nettle on her butt because she peed in the woods and didn't look, like, it is uncomfy. And, like, all of a sudden he's like, ha, 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 look at this girl having to squat because she does not have the capability to piss on a tree, you know? Like, it is awful how they treat her. And, like, yes, Heather is completely, like, delusional and, like, so, like, in her own kind of, like, world of being like, well, I've been in the woods before and this is my documentary and that's ultimately Mm -hmm. what, like, pushes them to, like, being haunted. They don't ever, ever give her any kind of, like, Honestly, like, her, the jabs at her is what pushes her deeper into her, like, well, I know what I'm doing, please listen to me, which is yeah. what gets them even more lost. And it's just kind of like, it, it, we talked about this. Had it been women, all, a, a group of only women in this situation... This would not have happened. No. At least not in the same way. No. Also, if it had been women, they would have been like, well, why don't we just stay in the motel all night and then every night and just film every day during the day and then go back before the sun sets, you know, like that. Yeah. Or someone would have brought a satellite phone or would have been like, we'll be at this checkpoint every day. Please mm-hmm. meet us here. Person who like knows the area better than us. Yeah. There would have just been more planning. Oh, I told you this story when we were watching the film, but I got rear-ended like about a year ago and there were four cars involved in the accident. And one of them was this mom who drove a Range Rover and I was just like, oh man, I'm really thirsty. She went into her car and pulled out a chilled bottle of water for me. Because she just travels with them. Yeah. Women will inherit the earth. You can't make this movie without men. No. Um, oh god, you were reminding me of something. Oh, when Heather does her final, like, <gasps> apology. This was going to be my, in my, my O's of our Q's and O's. It is fucking amazing it is really good um and 
we may have said this explicitly or not, but this the dialogue in this movie is improved. Um, there they had like written about thirty five pages of like what they wanted the script to look like and kind of gave the actors vague ideas, but it is improv, and so that whole scene is just Heather Donahue doing what she's doing, and she apologizes to Josh's mom, to Mike's mom, to her mom. And dad. Like, there's this huge pause before she's like, I also am sorry to my dad. Yeah. Because when you're going through the woods, you're like, oh man, I wish I did not have, I didn't do this to my mom. Yeah. Like, I, I found that really interesting. Yeah. And it makes it all the more poignant, too. Because if I were in that situation, I'd be like, I want my mom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... You know, I also think, like, there is this notion that, like, because women are life bringers, you know, mm-hmm. they did this work to bring these three people into the world, and Heather thinks that she is doing the work to take them out of it. Whereas, yeah. like, yes, men technically have a role in that, but not really. <laughs> not in the same way. Yeah. They don't, you know, yeah. do any birthing. But, like, women bring life into this world, and she is now a woman who is taking life out of it. And I think that that is what... Mm-hmm. The, the point of, of saying sorry to these moms, but also my dad, because, like, he raised me. me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That is, is so good. And, like, I, I have talked about this before um, with a couple of my friends, and I think you too. Like, the thing that makes this movie so stunning is the acting. Because even if you watch through Marble Hornets, which is the Slenderman series on YouTube, I'm sure everyone's seen at least a little bit of it. The thing that stops it from being truly terrifying, which it's totally scary, but the thing that really kind of sets you, like, reminds you that this isn't real is that the acting isn't very good. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it was like an early, early YouTube series. I mean, like, none of the acting was good. And we, early YouTube was early YouTube. But, like, the thing about this thing is it is so convincing and so good that, I mean, it convinced an entire, like, country that this was real for a while and like obviously there were skeptics and there were people who knew it wasn't real or whatever but it was really really selling they sold it so well and that apology is so good it is the pivotal point in the in the movie it is the pivotal of the last third yeah. of the movie yeah um i think the pivotal point of the first like in between the first and second third is losing the map and then yeah. that is the pivotal of the third it's very memorable. Um, it, it's, it's the movie poster. Yeah. It's, it's really, like, oof. Yeah. Chills. I want to talk a little bit about the set dressing. I say in quotes because obviously the setting is the woods. But yeah. I want to talk about production design. The rocks. The stick figures. The bundle of sticks that have the shirt and the chunk mm-hmm. of, unspecified chunk of flesh. It is deeply unsettling because it does not look like what was I what was in the review that you read earlier that was really interesting. Let me pull it up really quick. Okay, well Julia's gonna look something up, but it is something that I focused on for a really long time because it it is so intentional and everything is identical, but not in a way where it looks like somebody is poking fun at them. It is mm-hmm. it it feels otherworldly, you know. Yeah. I'm trying to find what... Because, okay, so Roger Ebert um, loved this movie. He gave it a four out of four stars. We're ju- jumping the gun on the rating system here. Um, but 
he loved it, and in his review, um, he talks about nature, and um, he says, once they get into the woods, the situation gradually turns ominous. They walk in circles. Something happens to their map. Nature itself begins to seem oppressive and dead. They find ominous signs, bundles of twigs, unsettling stick figures. These crude objects are scarier than more elaborate effects. They look like they are being created by a being who haunts the woods, not by someone who's playing a practical joke. Uh, much has been said about the realistic cinematography, how every shot looks like it was taken by a handheld camera in the woods, as it was. But the visuals are not just a technique. By shooting in a chill season, by dampening the color palette, the movie makes the woods look unfriendly and desolate. Nature is seen as a hiding place for dread secrets. Yeah. I miss him, R.I.P. R.I.P., um, that was way better. That, he summed up all of our feelings on that movie in one paragraph that we've been trying to do it in 50 minutes. Yeah. So now that we're kind of at that 50-minute mark, would you like to move into questions and observations, or do you have anything else you'd like to talk about before we move there? Um, no, I think we can move into... I'd love to hear some of your observations. Again, because this is the first time that I'm seeing this yes. movie, so it'd be interesting to hear okay. yours. Do you want to ask some questions first? No. No? We start I, with questions. I know, I forgot. Um, I can start with my questions. Yeah. Okay, my question, and I, we talked about this a little bit. Um, one of my first questions is why, why is Josh the one who gets picked off? I know why it can't be Heather mm-hmm. cause she's the storyteller. Why is Josh? I think because Heather and Mike don't really know each other and Heather and Josh clearly know each other. Um, and probably would have been able to forge a stronger bond and stay a little more sane because they had that relationship to lean on. But when you're talking about the camera being really isolating, like losing Josh, who's kind of the middleman in all of this, makes them feel even more isolated. Um, I, that's my theory. Yeah, I agree. I also think, and I mentioned this yesterday, um, or when we were watching it, that Mike and Josh flip roles in this movie. At first, Mike is like... Someone who is kind of an outsider. He's, like, very kind of... He's excited to be there because he thinks this is a good project to do. Um, but he is somebody who's not very nice to Heather. He's the one who kind of pushes her buttons a lot. He's the one who loses the map. And Josh is the one who is kind of on Heather's side as her friend. But then, once Josh is clearly singled out, once we see the, the slime on his backpack and he knows he's being picked by whatever is haunting them, mm-hmm. it he starts separating himself because he's going crazy. I mean, it is a psychological haunting and he ends up being the one who yells at Heather and it is Mike who comforts her. And they have this big role reversal that once he's gone, it is Mike's job to, and not just Mike's job to comfort Heather. Like she's not, you know, mm-hmm. it, she's also comforting him in a way. And they have actually this, like this conversation where he, yeah, you know, they make weird small talk about like wanting, you know, their mom's mashed potatoes and they, he asks her what she likes to do on Sundays and stuff where they're trying to forge a, a familiarity with each other. Mm-hmm. And I think it is creates something that is like a desperation bond, which makes the end all the more kind of sad where they like have tried to take care of each other for like another day and ultimately I cannot can't. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. It is. I mean, there's not like this is going to be happy. Yeah. This movie is very sad. Um, and it's it's funny because it's more it's like I feel like most horror movies are like 
scary, but like you can't, there's enough removal of like sad feelings to just let you be scared. But this is one that like really is sad. I also think that a lot of horror movies have more of a catharsis at the end Mm -hmm. where you either have like the final girl who is dealing with all this trauma, but it's over Mm -hmm. and you see like what comes next. Like you have an idea of what comes next, but nothing's coming next for Heather and Mike. No. And there's, there's also no like, you know, ending of, of this haunting. It's going to happen for forever. Yeah. Yikes. It's almost like, you know how there's always like in, in horror movies, there's often like, the tale that gets told that tells you what the rest of the horror movie is going to be about. And then you have a general idea that that is going to be the same story told over, but then someone's going to win at the end. Mm -hmm. But we get so many different versions of like what the myth is. Yeah. We get so many versions, but this is just the, this is actually the story that other people tell before the the horror movie is set back up. You know, Mm -hmm. we just get that. And that is why it's sad because it ends before it begins. And like, yeah. It's devastating. Oof. Yeah. Um, what were my other questions? Oh, my other question was about the stories. What do we make of the fact that all of these stories that are told by the people that are interviewed in the beginning of the movie have kind of not very much to do with one another? And does that add value to the fact that we don't really know what kills them at the end? What, what do you make of that? Well, what I think is really interesting is that we hear the story about the man who killed the seven children. Yeah. Um, but then the other tales that we hear are all about a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, I do think it is implied that it's that man. Yeah. And men are evil. <laughs> men are evil. Um, Moral of the blue witch. Actually, yeah. yeah it is. is. It? Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I find it really interesting because I don't generally like ambiguity in films. I, I find its value, but more often than not, I'm like, well, you just did that so that you didn't have to write a real answer. Yeah. Um, for me, it adds value because as you're going throughout the experience of like being with Heather and Mike and Josh in the woods, you don't know mm-hmm. what's coming after them. But it's also much more of like, physical descriptions and not really about like what's happened to people except that guy and coffin rock which i want to ask about and coffin rock which yeah yeah doesn't get played up as much as i thought it would no and i mean i think the idea of like coffin rock is ominous or what have you Mm-hmm. But the killings that happen there, at least as for the story that gets told about it, it doesn't feel like they don't actually feel supernatural to me. It feels like a massacre, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas, like, and none of the none of the the killings in the stories. The only thing that actually feels deeply supernatural to me is the story that Mary Brown tells about the woman who's covered in fur. Yeah. Um. But I also think this story is a legend about someone called the Blair Witch. So your assumption is that it would be someone who is a woman because that is a, you know, a female moniker. Yeah, Yeah. a trope. And to think that this is the Blair Witch and then to later find out that it might be like, you know, a spirit of a man who did all these killings. Or I also for a really long time assumed that it was the Blair Witch who possessed the guy in the woods into killing all those kids. And that's why he had some sort of task, because they say he, because he comes down to the town and says it's finally done. 
Possibly. So my thought was that he also went crazy from living in that part of the woods, was haunted by the Blair Witch, and that's what happened. Interesting. Like, she did use him to do his bidding. But I don't know, you know, I mean, it's so mm-hmm. ambiguity, like, and so ambiguity, it's so ambiguous. And again, I think it does add value. I, I think it's scarier not knowing. I think mm-hmm. when that is your purpose is to make something that is terrifying, that is better, you know? Yeah. You know, alien. I often find in situations like this where it's a legend that's being told by the town, it often has much more to do with the town mm-hmm. and the people in the town. And eventually when you come to a conclusion, like it was someone or some family or it's an entity that's like in the physical town itself. And I find it really interesting that this is not that. Mm-hmm. Obviously not. Like that sounded really dumb, but um, no, 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 it's, no, a, I it's a departure from that kind yeah. of concept, I think. Well, it's funny because I think that that concept also operates on like misunderstanding of like, your neighbor kind of mm-hmm. stuff where people see things and don't understand what they're seeing and therefore reflect evil onto them. And sometimes that evil is there and sometimes it's not. Yeah. But this is something that is so isolated from the town. It's not based on personal prejudice. Prejudice. It's based in like deep rooted psychological fear of the mm-hmm. unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Deep. <laughs> deep. <laughs> um, do you have any questions you want to ask? Anything you thought of? Oh, just like your really basic who slash what is the Blair Witch. Um, I actually well, I kind of just answered what I have thought. Yeah. My theory. And yeah. if you have theories, we want to hear Please them because there's no us. way I'm right. Let us know. Um, I actually had a question just about your feeling on something in the film, which is the handprints in the house. Oh, God. Because... A lot of what I've been thinking about when I've been reading about the way that this film was made and thinking about, oh, it's found footage and improv. And I think that if this movie were made today, some of it would ring really cheesy. Yeah. And it would ring really, like, trying too hard and vaguely exploited, like, exploitative of these actors. And it could have been in a much more manipulative situation. And from everything I've read, it, it wasn't. But I don't know. I find it kind of interesting that they that that was like the one detail that they chose to add to put in the house yeah well I think it's interesting because they're clearly children's handprints Mm -hmm. because they're low on the wall and they're small from what I can see from what you see through the camera um it is it is an interesting it is an interesting piece of set dressing I think particularly because everything else we've seen from the Blair Witch hauntings have been like creature created those bundle of sticks feels very animalistic mm-hmm. and like you know old otherworldly old worldly yeah and that is something that is like i mean handprints like blood the bloody handprint is like classic classic of horror yeah um so i think that that is maybe even something that suggests that the blair witch is something more human than we had anticipated before mm-hmm. or at least was at one point and, I mean, we don't really know what happened to those children before they were murdered. Yeah. So if there was, you know, I th- we know that it happened in the house. So if there was, you know, all other activities that, you know, we would never know of because that, that was not part of the story, I think that that actually kind of leans you into thinking that it was more gruesome. I mean, it's obviously gruesome, mm-hmm. but maybe more exploitative in, in its, you know, grossness than before. I just, I think it, it does, I mean, it gives you the chills, you know, mm-hmm. to think of, 
I mean, thinking of children being murdered is obviously yeah. deeply terrifying. Well, and the fact that it goes up the stairs, I think, is something yeah. really interesting because maybe that's how it happened for all of them. Yeah. Maybe and they all go up the stairs and come back down the stairs because they're looking for something. Like, it's yeah. a ritualistic... Which is exactly what Heather yeah. and, and Mike do. Mm-hmm. And I think I think what the handprints originally do is add validity to that to say that that was the story that is true, the most mm-hmm. true, that we have the most proof of. It tells you that that's what the story was true. And then when you see Mike turned in the corner in the basement, it, it hammers it home. It. Yeah. Which I think the handprints suggest to you and it's what you don't want to think think or believe and then you see Mike turn to this corner and you're like oh my god that's it mm-hmm. so I think that's the value they add do you have thoughts I mean other than those yeah I when I saw them I was like deeply upset and I was talking out loud at that point yes yeah. you and Jessa were both like ah! and I was like because yeah. I knew I was yeah. like wait till the last 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes rolled around and you guys were like ah! yeah I mean it's that very classic white trope where it's like, don't go in the house. And obviously, that's exactly what they, they do. do. Yeah. Um, but it's not like they go in to investigate. They go in mm-hmm. because they think that there is this weird, slight, awful chance that they can save Josh. And they yeah. know they can't. They know he's dead. They know from the bundle of sticks that he is dead. But they are so panicked and damaged at this point. That is the one thing that they are holding on to. Yeah. So it's not like they're being like, okay, gang, let's split split up, Scooby-Doo style. Side note, have you ever seen the Scooby-Doo Blair Witch? No. Oh my god, we're watching it. It's terrifying. Scooby-Doo, like, the show put out, like, out in, like, 2000, put out this episode of Scooby-Doo that is filmed like the Blair Witch, but they did it, like, too realistically, and it, they had to stop airing it because it's terrifying. That's really funny. Yeah, but it's, like, Scrappy-Doo in the woods. Like, that's the Blair Witch. It's very strange. We should watch it. Wow. If you've watched the Scooby-Doo Blair Witch parody, please tell us. Tweet at us. Let us know. Um, but yeah, you know. It's not... I mean, it is classic. Like, don't go in the house. Like, everybody split up. Whatever. Yeah. But, like, it is so much more than that in the fact that they think that they have a chance to save Josh. Mm-hmm. It's sad. It is sad. Do you have any more questions? No questions, no. But you have observations? Oh, yeah. But you go first. Okay, I'll go first. So, um, my first observation is that the improv in this movie that is just, like, kind of day-to-day small talk, getting to know each other stuff, mm-hmm. is so good. Yeah. It is so good. It is so necessary. It's just the kind of, like, even when they're just talking about how the film, like, the, their dailies look from that day, like, when they're talking about, oh, like, I wish this shot had been different, but I'll put a voiceover over it, or when they're talking about, like, how they think Mary Brown is crazy, or... When they're talking about eating their mom's food and, you know, mm-hmm. wanting a cigarette at the end of the day, like, there is so much humanity that goes into it, which I think is in, in part because it's improv, that it makes the stuff that is not that, that is talking about the horror, so juxtaposed, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of horror movies will be like, the entire dialogue, the entire interactions of all the characters is like... But did you hear about this legend, blah, 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 but the old man who lives in the house in the woods and blah, 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 blah. And, like, that's all that consumes their thoughts. Mm-hmm. But the fact that there's so much of this that is either them trying not to think about what's scaring them and, like, trying to comfort each other and, like, a, like let's talk about what makes us happy kind of way. Or even just in the, like, we have five hours to walk in the woods, we might as well entertain ourselves way. I think that that creates such a deep sense of humanity that is so good and so interesting. And those are some of my favorite parts of the movie. I would agree. My observation actually really touches on that. Oh, well then share it now. Which is that I think 
This movie is absolute lightning in a bottle, and I would not want to watch any other iteration. Not of this movie, but, like, of found footage, of improv, of the actors approaching it this way. Mm-hmm. And it really reminds me of this story that I've always heard with um, when Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier collaborated on Marathon Man. Um, and Dustin Hoffman was going on and on about how, like, he didn't sleep for 72 hours, and I think he had, like, a toothpaste. Oh, oh, yes. And Laurence Olivier is like, my dear boy, have you ever tried acting? And, like, I think about that stuff all the time, because I don't want to shit on people's artistic projects, and I think that there's a lot of merit in doing things like this, but this is such a well-executed film, and they thought it out so perfectly that, like, someone else trying to replicate a similar thing would not be successful, and I wouldn't be interested no. in it. And like I said earlier, it could liter- this movie could literally only exist in 1999. Yeah. No cell phones, mm-hmm. battery, digital cameras. That, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and the fact that it has endured. Oh, I mean, it's still so incredibly watchable. Mm-hmm. To the point where, I, again, this, is the, this year is the 20th anniversary of this movie coming out, and we've seen, I've seen so many articles being like, here's why The Blair Witch is still amazing. Yeah. I will say my other observation is that in terms of found footage, like, it's very effective and it's super interesting, and I love that they have the actors doing it themselves, but there's just, like, an old lady in me who's like, I don't want to watch the camera shaking around, and I'm like, I get tired of it eventually, so sometimes I'm just like, please... Hold the camera steady. Yeah. I, I pray to God. But I think that this movie does it better than others. It does. And I will say when I started getting annoyed by it, it got better. Um, mm-hmm. But there was a part of where I was just like, no. Yeah. But have you, seen, have you ever seen Chronicle? No. Chronicle is like a found footage movie about these teenagers who get superpowers. It's like... Fine. It's like B+. Okay. I was definitely entertained. I probably don't need to watch it again. But that is a movie where I was like, I ended up getting like a little sickened by the camera shake. But this is actually, and again, like it could only happen in 1999. Because the quality of the image is so low, mm-hmm. you're not seeing really fine detail shaking. Yeah. So it's way less headache inducing, you know? Because I think the, the effect that you kind of get when you watch, like, a, a really HD camera found footage is, like, car window where you just keep staring at things past too fast and it makes you sick because you're seeing it in real time. But because it's a little fuzzy, you don't have to, you're not focusing on fine details. It's far more watchable. That makes sense. I mean, I don't know if there's, like, a medical or psychological reason for that, but that's how I feel. I mean, probably. Yeah. If you're a doctor. Let us know. Review us on iTunes. <laughs> If a doctor reviews us on iTunes... They'd be like, get help. Our job is done. <laughs> um, um, and then... Oh, my last observation was about Heather's apology and just how good it is. It's really... Yeah. Really excellent. Um, this, this is one of those movies where... Oh, I do have one more observation after this, but yes, go ahead. Oh, this is just one of those movies where I'm like, why did they do any of the things that they did? (laughs) Like, not bring a satellite, you know, all of the dumb things. And obviously we wouldn't have a movie if that were the case. But listen, have you ever met a white film student in college? Yeah, we met a lot of those and that's exactly how they'd behave. (laughs) Pathetic. Pathetic. I'm just kidding. I like my film friends. Um... No, my final observation was when we were talking about shaky camera. There is one. There's like almost only one set scene in this movie where the camera is set up on a tripod to be just filming something that isn't part of the documentary that they're making, 
And at one point, Heather puts the camera down and goes and sit next sits next to Mike and puts her head on his shoulder. This is right very at the very end where they're just kind of talking and like trying to comfort each other. And I always just thought that that was like such a crazy choice to just kind of put the camera on yourselves. You know, she's not filming Mike as they're sitting there. Mm-hmm. And she chooses to keep the camera on and just kind of holds him in a moment where they're like, we're going to fucking die out here. And it's almost like just trying to capture them as they are in that moment because they know that they're not making it out. And that, I think, is so, so good and so sad. It's a real through line for her when they're like, why do you keep filming us? And she just wants to get it all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Observations, my lady? I, that's it. I'm out. This was a great, great movie, and it's a lot to think about. So much to think about, yeah. Um, but it's also one of those things where, like, I had a lot more observations about Twilight, because I've seen Twilight 50 times. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll do, like, a play which we visited. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's funny, because we can sit here and be like, this is just a movie about Caucasity, Caucasian audacity. It is. But it is also, like, about a lot more than that, you know? It's about, like, what it is to be terrified for your life, and, Mm -hmm. like, alone, and terrified so much so that you can't stop recording it. Yeah. And the scene when, when Josh is like, I see why you like this so much. It's like an alternate reality. Oof. Well, one of the many criticisms that Gen Z is facing is filming like school shootings and things like that. But I completely understand and empathize with the impulse to do that because it's like, I need evidence that that was real. Yeah. And that I had that experience. And also, there's obviously political implications to yeah. filming something like that, but I think You can go good... ahead and film it. They just need to stop showing it on the news. <laughs> yes. Um, agreed. Rubber stamped. And interesting that you make that point, that Heather makes that point about mm-hmm. wanting to capture it all, even when it is all going to hell. Yeah. Which I think is a human impulse, but especially now that we have these readily accessible video cameras. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so now to like pretend that we're happy and cheery again. Alrighty. What is your rating for this movie? Well, I do want to mention that Rotten Tomatoes um, has an 87% for this movie, which is kind of low, in my opinion. Like, for how good this movie is yes. and, and how unique it is, I thought it would be in like the 90s. Yeah. But. American grading scale, that's a B, plus, which is weird because it's definitely more than that. Yeah. Um, I would call it an A minus. It's not like a perfect film. But it is unique mm-hmm. and not something that you are ever going to see again. Yeah. Um, there are flaws, but I do think that it is one of the best. Yeah. Do we t- did we talk seen. about Heather's audition? Oh, no. This is a fun fact that I read. Not a, not a sad fact. A fun fact. Um, so when the directors were looking for people to be in this movie, they held auditions in New York and, um, it was an improv audition, obviously, because that's what they're going to be doing in the film. And the prompt that they gave these actors was, you've been incarcerated for 20 years. You're up against the parole board. What do you have to say to yourself for yourself? And Heather Donahue walked into that room and they asked her, why do you think you should be let out of jail? And she said, I don't think I should be. And they hired her, like, on the spot. I assume. I don't know. Yeah. But they said that she was the only person in all of the people that they auditioned 
who said that. I That also makes me wonder if they had an idea of how they wanted the gender breakdown to be or if it came down to people auditioning. Maybe. But my point in, in asking you to tell that story is that it kind of sums up your point on the Blair Witch Project. It was unique. It would never happen again. Was it perfect? No, but it was completely shocking. Yeah. Blair Witch Project. I love this movie and I've seen it a couple times. I'm going to give it an A. It, I think it's really well executed. It is something that is totally rewatchable. Um, and I, I'm also coming into it with a bit of bias because I liked it before. And I, now mm-hmm. I get to talk about it for an hour. So I'm thinking about it. So yes, I give it an A. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a B plus. And um, Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars. And we love and trust his opinion. True. Or at least I do. I, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so review us on iTunes. Okay, we, so- didn't say, we didn't say that enough during this episode, so I'm trying to get it in. Yeah, but we could do it in like a less abrupt and rude way. Nah. Nah. All right, thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back um, later this week with episode seven. seven of season one of Teen Wolf, but we do want to get in a few more Halloween-y movies before the month of October is over for our bonus episodes, because... We love Halloween. It's our favorite holiday, and we know that you guys do too. We all love the spooky stuff, which is why you like Teen Wolf. Um, if you would do us a favor and review us and rate us on iTunes, that would be amazing. It's going to end up being how we find new listeners. If you like movies or you like Teen Wolf and you have friends who like movies and like Teen Wolf, tell them because word of mouth is also helpful. As it, is proven by the Blair Witch Project. As is proven by the Blair Witch Project. If you would like to follow us on social media, we are on Twitter and Instagram at, at TeenWolf underscore Rewolf. And from there, you can follow our personal Twitters and Instagrams. We're also on Tumblr at TeenWolfRewolf. It's mostly just our episode feed right now. I promise I'll get better at our Tumblr, but like I'm also at a point in my life where like paying attention to what's happening on Tumblr is not feasible. Not in the but I will try my best. Um... And if you guys have suggestions for bonus episodes or if you have feedback about this bonus episode, let us know because we want to do what makes you guys happy as well as what makes us happy. And other than that, um, that's it. It's a Sunday evening. Have a glass of wine. Hang out with your friends. Get ready for the work week. We love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.